going to be to the point of this course is to go through all of the major works of the Torah throughout history and one important to discuss the authors. So this week we'll be speaking about the Torah, the written Torah, which that being said, um, we all know who the author of that is. So it'll be that will be less of a that will be less of a um, need to be discussed. But in general, we will be discussing the authors um, of the different parts of Torah, the important personalities, and what is the origin of it all. But before we get into the course, I want to start off with thanking all of you for coming. Um, I'm pretty sure there is a Laker game going on right now. Oh, I really? can check that. There's always a Laker game going on. There's always Laker game. Yeah, starting starting any minute. So it means a lot to me that this course is more important than the Laker game. It is for me. And in general, with the fact that you're taking any time to come here, it really, really means a lot to me. So thank you very, very much. Um, that's number one. Number two is I want to start off with a – usually I start off with a joke. Alan made sure to – Tell me that I need to say a joke, but today I am going to start off with a story. There's actually one time, this is a true story, actually. One time, a there was a man who lived in an old country, which he was very, very wealthy. And he had one son. This son ends up becoming non-religious. He leaves the fold. Was there a heater under the table? Heater right there. Um, he leaves the fold. So the father, when he's passing away, he writes in his will that he wants all of his money to go to his son, but all of his Torah books he wants to send to his to the yeshiva, the local yeshiva, which is the yeshiva of the Chafetz Chaim in the city of Radin. Um, and the Chafetz Chaim responds, and he said, "This is really funny." He said, "The yeshiva." We are full of Torah scholars. We don't need books. He should have given, we need the money. And his son, which doesn't learn Torah, he has all the money. Why does he need more money? We should give him the books. Um, thought that was a cute story to start off with. Uh, speaking about book smart. So, um, what we're going to try to go through is we're going to cover all major genres of Judy, of Torah, which would start off with the Torah. The Midrash, Talmud, Kabbalah, Halacha, Musar, and Hasidut. So each one of these bodies we've all heard of before. We've heard their names, but the goal of this course, coming out of this course, would be to actually have an understanding when we quote, when we quote it, we say this is, when we quote any one of these things, we should know what it is, what it entails, and know more about it. Um, so now I want everyone to look if you're on, in your books on page three. So you have a small, a course map. So it's going, it goes through, um, on page three, it goes through all the, everything we're going to talk about in this course. Also in your book, you should have, um, on the first page, there should be a pullout sheet, which has, um, it's double-sided. So side A goes through all major personalities that are spoken about throughout the course and which genre of Torah they are and which lesson we'll speak about them. Oh, the end of the and on the back, 
on the back of the of this pullout, there is a map of the history of the Tanakh. Both of those will be. Both of those we will be. The first, no, you have it in front of you. The pullout thing you pulled out already. Yeah. The back and we will. I'll be ref. I'll be keep on referencing back to it. So let's, um, let's keep that in mind. All right. So let's get started. So when I say Torah, what does Torah mean? So there are two. What is when I say the Torah? So the Torah can have two explanations. What it means. The to first Torah is is the Torah. If you look on page three, you have the two pictures. You have a picture on the right, which is the Torah scroll. That the Torah is written on parchment. If there's any letters and touching, then um, if there's during Torah reading, it's always super exciting when my father's reading the Torah and he takes off his glasses, he looks super closely, he sees two letters touching, and he's like, ah, oh, this Torah is puzzle. We have to put it away. It's in valid Torah. We have to use a new Torah. Or letters missing. So that is Torah number one. Torah number two is right over here. Is a this is a library. So in the library, there's um L, there's hundreds, of, this is thousands of pages. This is also called the Torah. And they're both correct interpretation of what the Torah is. There's actually an organization in Israel called Otzer HaChachma. Um, their goal is they have a computer program. Either you can have a hard drive, but they also have it online. This is a guy. His whole goal in life is to find all new and old works of Torah. And he has a hard drive of them all. And he has like 120,000 books of Torah within his hard drive. And that is the Torah. And this is notwithstanding all the books which are missing throughout history. Like, for instance, when I was learning to become a rabbi, there was a commentary we used to learn. In the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, which we will discuss, I think, in Lesson 4, if I'm not mistaken. I could go back there one second. Lesson four is okay. I can't tell from this map. I think lesson four we discuss halacha, um, the code of Jewish law. So I was learning that to become a rabbi. Actually, there was a book. One of the commentaries on the code of Jewish law is a man. His name was the Shach Shabsi Cohen. One of the legends about the Shach Shabsi Cohen is some that his daughter, he was running away, um, from the Cossacks from Chalmanitsky, and his daughter ends up getting adopted. I forget all the details. Gets any ends up getting adopted by the by the by some count or the or a king, and it's a whole long story how he gets reunited with his daughter many many years later. Um, so he constantly throughout his manuscript on the code of Jewish law. He constantly goes back referencing my book, this Sifri. He says, I in this Sifri, check out my book, which I wrote such, such, and such. I, I discuss this at length. You're right. I didn't, I'm not going to discuss this here at length because I already discussed this at length in my book. So ironically, his book, we don't have. It got, it got lost, but his commentary on the code of Jewish law, we have. So all these things, which he says, I'm not going to discuss them here because I have my book. All those manuscripts we don't have anymore. But the manuscripts we do have are the manuscripts of, are his manuscripts of that, of the Court of Jewish Law. And he has other books also that we have, that we have his manuscripts. So that being said, there is, so I'm saying this, 
the Torah has, we know of 120,000 books that this guy, which is the Otar Chachma, he put together. But there are actually many, many, many more books that we didn't make it. They got burnt or got lost throughout history. So which one is the Torah? Is the Torah figure A or is the Torah figure B? So, so I just want to. Um, On the specific figures you're referring to, what? Yep. Page three at the bottom. Page three at the bottom. Just to summarize, I mean, I didn't say much, but there are two Torahs. There is the there is Torah as a Torah scroll, and then there's Torah as the body of Torah. And we're saying they're obviously both Torah, but it's just interesting that we call them both Torah. So, Ron, I don't think that's phase three. I think it is. So, in order, in order to differentiate between these two Torahs, I actually want to we're going to discuss. There are two dimensions in Torah. There is a Torah which is called the written Torah. It's generally, um, there is generally reference as the written Torah. Which is the um? There is the written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, which is written over the forty years while he was in the desert. Um, most of it actually written in all the way in the end. We have the Ten Commandments, which came earlier, but most of the written Torah is actually not from then. That Moshe, this these are all his discussions. He wrote them down right before he passed away. Uh, at the end of his time in the desert, right before he passed away, before the Jews went to Israel, Moshe ends up writing 13 Torahs, 12. He gives to each one a Torah to a tribe. And then he gives the he gives the 13th Torah to be safe kept at the in the temple right next to the Ark. Then we have the general Torah, which is the hundred thousands of writings, which are all written from everywhere. So now let's discuss the written Torah for a second. What is what is the written Torah? So the written Torah, one thing that's very important about the written Torah is that it has to be written perfectly. If there's one letter missing from the written Torah, the Torah is not kosher. It is entirely a text-based learning. So much so that like, there are some opinions, which the Rebbe was of this opinion, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that when the Rebbe, when he would, when he would, when he would quote a verse from the Torah, since he was quoting it by heart, he would misquote it. He would, by when I say misquote, he would pronounce one of the words with the wrong vowels, maybe, or he would say something. He would just make it that the meaning would sound the same for what he was trying to say. Um, but he maybe he'll change a word, which there's two words in Hebrew with the same meaning, but he'd misquote it in order to never quote the written Torah, not from the text. And the written Torah, which we're talking about, includes, there are we're going to get into a little bit later, there are 24 books in Tanakh, which Tanakh, is a acronym for the the letters, the Hebrew letters, Tuf, Nun, and Chaf, which you don't need no Hebrew for this. The 
These only Hebrew letters, which we're learning. Tav stands for Torah. The Nun stands for Nevi'im, the prophets. And Chav is Ksuvim, all the scripture. And this consists of the written Torah, which we're going to get into more depth. What is differentiation between them? So that's the written Torah. The oral Torah, on the other hand. Kaf, Nun, and Kaf. The oral Torah was handed from teacher to disciple. It was the discussions about Torah. And not only that, it was originally not allowed to be written down. Only many years later, there's the time of Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He was around 1,800 years after the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. We're going to get into this more in Lesson 3 when we speak about the Mishnah. Next lesson is about the Midrash. Lesson 3, we speak about the Mishnah. So Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, he realizes that Judaism is coming decentralized. It used to be Judaism was very centralized. So you had a question, you had a, everyone had their own personal Torah scroll, and they had a question on an interpretation, you went to your rabbi. But then, it was coming decentralized. So people, there's Jewish communities, which didn't have a rabbi. And they needed a, they needed, they, they needed a, a law to follow. So they ended up, he ended up, ends up writing down the oral Torah in the form of the Mishnah, and then all other scriptures and all other writings are all branches which branch off the oral Torah. And these would be, the oral Torah would be everything which is succeeding the 24 books of the 24 books of Tanakh. So the, 20, the 24 books of Tanakh are the written Torah. Then everything else in Torah is the oral Torah. Um, I just want to point out, let's look at text one. Just text one, it brings a point from the Talmud that uh, stands for Torah. Well, the five books of Moses? Yeah. And Nun? Nevi'im, prophets. All right. So I just want to read text one. It says the words, text one is on page four. It says, the words that were given in writing, you are not allowed to communicate them orally. And the words that were taught orally, you're not allowed to communicate them in writing. That is a quote from the Talmud. And um, that that is a quote from the Talmud. And it's saying that this point that we were just discussing, that the, the oral Torah, it's talking about originally that the oral, the written Torah is not allowed to be said orally, which is a problem. Like you have... Bar Mitzvah boys, they, I teach Bar Mitzvah boys, they learn how to read from the Torah and they memorize it. They memorize it by heart and then they look out of the Torah and they're still reading. That's You can't do that. You have to be reading it inside. And since it's a, it's a text-based learning, even if you don't understand what you're reading, if you're reading the words, it's as if you are learning. But the oral Torah it, it is a understanding-based learning. And therefore, even though nowadays it's written, it's still called the oral Torah, because it's based on intellect, it's based on the discussion, it's discussion-based, and the writings are the discussions. So now... And the cough of the 12 million cough... Scripture. The Talmud, the scripture. No. Scripture. Scripture. Yeah, Ksuvim. Like the Megillah's Tehillim. 
psalms as part of it? Oh, uh, the, the Haggadah. Uh, what, what is scripture? Suvim, not scripture. What's the Suvim is the all the writings of the Tanakh. It's not prophets. We're gonna, I'll get into it shortly. What it is? Footnotes? No, it's different parts of Tanakh. Well, I noticed in the edition of the Tanakh that I use was published by Babad of Malibu. And the footnotes far outweigh the, the footnotes are the oral Torah. That's scripture? That's the oral Torah. The oral the scripture. We're going to get into we're, this. going to be a video soon. We're going to get into it all. So the Torah, back to the Torah. So the Torah comes in two formats. So you have the written Torah, which is books. And then there's the oral Torah, which is actually, as I was saying earlier, is a fact based. Uh, it, it's a fact based. It's a. It's a people based discussion. So even though nowadays it's already it's already written, but it's not about the writings; it's about the opinion. Who's writing? It's about it's much more about the information, and therefore, if you misquote, if you misquote something from there, it's not the biggest deal in the world because the point, the point is not the the point is not the words, rather the message that is trying to be conveyed. So now that we got that sorted, we have the written Torah. We have the written Torah, which is a. We have the written Torah, which is a what's a, which is a text-based learning, and then we have the oral Torah, which is a people-based learning. It's an intellectual-based learning. So now this class, once we got that sorted, I want to we're going to discuss the twenty-four books of the Tanakh. So. What we already said is Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. That's the Tafnun and the writings. The Tafnun and the Chaf. So what is the Tanakh? So let's say um, you're working in Barnes & Nobles. Or you're not working in Barnes & Nobles. Let's say you walk into Barnes Oh yeah, you're working in Barnes & Nobles. That's a good analogy. And someone walks in and says, I want a Tanakh. What section is it in? So... That's gonna be an easy question to answer. You'll say the Tanakh is in the the Tanakh is in the religion section. Easy. So great. Let's say the religion section doesn't exist. There's is religion is not existent yet. So now, what do you put the Tanakh in the ethics section? Maybe you'd put it in the history section or the philosophy section, the law section. Where would he put the Torah? Where where would he put it? You know, there's parts of Torah. Which the Tanakh speak about ethics. There's parts you have the whole the whole Tanakh speaking about history, the whole beginning. It's the biggest history book. It starts from the first day of history. Um, there's plenty of stuff of philosophy, which we will learn shortly. Um, different philosophy from the top from from the Tanakh. Um, law, you have six or thirteen mitzvot, so you have it all in there. So we're exactly one area where we put the Tanakh in. You're running a bookstore. Which section? It's a hard question, right? So the easy way out is just don't don't hold the Torah. And when you have a bookstore, just say no religious books. No no Torah books, but I'm kidding. No. So the question is, where would we put this book? So to answer this question, I actually want to point out 
Um, what does Torah mean? So the Rebbe would always, the Rebbe would always say that Torah is from the word hora'a, which means hora'a means a a message. It means the a guide. This is how you're supposed to the 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 hora'a is after you learn something. The message that comes out of it. So that's what Torah really means. The so Torah is really a is is a it's a guide. By the way, this looks like a slide. Looks like a um a dictionary. If you check the dictionary for Torah, it will not say instruction, a guide towards life. That's not what it would say. But this is if you ask a Hasidic rabbi when he tells you what does Torah mean, he'll say it's a guide. So the Torah is a guide toward, towards Jewish life towards how you're supposed to act. It's an instruction manual. So therefore, you have all these things, as we see in text two, as we see in text two of our books, it says, this is a, it's a quote from the Mishnah, it says, delve and delve into it, for all is in it. See with it, grow old and worn with it. Do not budge from it, for there is nothing better. So we see from here that the Torah is not a not anything specific. It's not one thing. It is an, it is a it's called Torah Tchaim. It's a living Torah, which is a constant guide and manual for us how to live our life in every aspect. So if back to our question, where would you put the Torah? You'd probably put it in the instruction manual section of Barnes and Nobles, or even more. You know, there's a, when I was thinking about this, I could not be helped but thinking in law, there's a big debate in American law if the Constitution is a is an original document or if it's a living document. Or there's the originalist judges and there is the, I forgot the other type of what's up. If it's a, you could, if the Constitution could be more, you could learn stuff from it or whatever. So, from Torah, it's very, very clear that Torah is a living document. It's a living Torah. It's a living example for us in our day-to-day -day lives. And that's what Torah is. So now that we know what Torah is, here's a um, a short video going through all the books of Tanakh and what they all discuss. Book. No book has had a greater impact on human history, on human civilization. No book has been more devoutly read, more diligently studied, more deeply probed. Uh, can you make it louder? Yes. Join us for a journey that spans thousands of years. Thanks. Journey traversed by shepherds and kings, prophets and prophetesses, scribes and seers. Is that better? As we explore the 24 books, the 929 chapters, and the 22,864 verses that comprise the Jewish Bible. The Tanakh consists of three components, Torah, Nevi'im, or Prophets, and Ketubim, or writings. The first section, Torah, is the most fundamental text of Judaism, transcribed by Moses during One second, I just realized something. The 40 years that the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness. 
This is the text inscribed in the Torah scroll, the most sacred object in Judaism. The Torah consists of five books, the five books of Moses, also called the Chumash. The Torah recounts the origins of the Jewish people, but even more importantly, it contains the 613 mitzvot, divine commandments that define our mission in life and the covenant between God and the people of Israel. The book of Genesis describes the creation of the world and the formative events of early human history. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, and the lives and deeds of the founding fathers and mothers of the people of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers. Genesis also includes the seven Noahide laws and three of the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. The book of Exodus describes the Exodus from Egypt, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and the construction of the tabernacle. It includes the Ten Commandments and 101 other mitzvot. The book of Leviticus records 247 mitzvot commanded by God to Moses pertaining to the temple service, the kosher dietary laws, the festivals of the Jewish year, and a variety of ritualistic, social, and civil laws, including the maxim, love your fellow as yourself. The book of Numbers recounts the events of the Israelites' 40-year journey through the wilderness. It also includes 52 mitzvot. The book of Deuteronomy contains Moses' final address to the people of Israel before his passing. It reviews many of the events and laws of the previous three books, as well as 200 additional mitzvot. A Jew lives with the Torah 365 days a year, and the five books are divided into 54 sections or parshiot. Each week, another parsha is publicly read in the synagogue, and each parsha has seven sections so that each day of the week has its distinct lesson of the day to study and apply to our lives. The eight books of the prophets section of Tanakh record the words and deeds of the prophets who brought the word of God to the people in the centuries after Moses. The first four books in this section are primarily historical, recounting the events from the children of Israel's settlement of the Holy Land to the destruction of the first temple. The book of Joshua describes the conquest of the Holy Land and its apportionment among the 12 tribes of Israel. Judges describes events during the 14 generations of the judges who led the people of Israel in the centuries after the passing of Joshua. The book of Samuel recounts the lives and deeds of the prophet Samuel, King Saul, and King David. And Kings recounts the history of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Isaiah was sent by God to convey prophecies of consolation over the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile, and to describe the future messianic age of peace, perfection, and divine revelation. Jeremiah warned that Jerusalem will be destroyed because of the people's sins and injustices, but also conveyed the promise that the exiles to Babylon will return after 70 years. Ezekiel described his vision of the divine chariot that is the source for many of the mystical teachings of Kabbalah and of the third holy temple of the messianic era. The last book in the prophets section is composed of 12 smaller books recording the prophecies of 12 prophets. Hosea, who God instructs to marry an unfaithful woman in order to experience firsthand God's interminable love for his people despite their unfaithfulness. Amos, who denounces the exploitation of the weak and poor by the rich and powerful, and speaks about the hypocrisy in serving God while failing to practice justice and charity. The story of Jonah, which teaches the power of prayer and of repentance. Joel and Nahum, who foretell the divine judgment of the nations who persecuted the people of Israel. Obadiah, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah prophesy the future messianic age of peace and perfection when all nations will unite to serve God. And the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi encouraged the people during the difficulties of their return from Babylon to build the second temple. The words of the prophets are also incorporated into the annual Torah reading cycle in the form of the Haftorah, 
selected portions from the prophets, which we read after the public Torah reading on Shabbat and other special occasions. The third section of Tanakh, the writings, include 11 books composed by King David in the Holy Land some 3,000 years ago. The Psalms of the Book of Tehillim express the yearnings, tribulations, and exaltations of the Jewish experience in every land and in every generation. Psalms form an integral part of every Jewish prayer and are read, wept, and sung at every occasion from a birth to a funeral. Whenever a Jew has the need to plead for divine assistance, celebrate a triumph or simply talk to God, the verses of Tehillim give voice to the outpourings of his or her soul. Also in the writing sections are three books containing the wisdom of King Solomon. Proverbs contains aphorisms on the virtues of wisdom, hard work, and a moral life. Song of Songs is a pastoral love song that metaphorically describes the relationship between God and Israel. Ecclesiastes speaks of the transience of life and the futility of worldly pursuits. Also in the writing section, the book of Job confronts the question, why do the righteous suffer? Ruth tells the story of the Moabite princess who converted to Judaism and became the ancestress of King David. Lamentations mourns the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile of Israel. The Scroll of Esther recounts the story of Purim, when Haman's plot to annihilate all the Jews in the Persian Empire was foiled by Queen Esther and Mordechai. The visions and deeds of Daniel, the Judean prince who served in the royal courts of Babylonia and Persia, are in the book that bears his name. Daniel also prophesied on the rise and fall of nations and the timing of the Messianic redemption. Ezra Nehemiah describes the Jewish people's return from Babylon, the reestablishment of their commitment to the Torah, and the building of the Second Holy Temple. Chronicles contains a summary of the whole of biblical history. Five of the books of the writings section, also called the Five Scrolls, are publicly read in select times of the year. The Scroll of Esther on Purim, Ruth on Shavuot, Song of Songs on Passover, Lamentations on Tisha B'Av, and Ecclesiastes on Sukkot. 1,000 years after the revelation at Sinai, in the first generation of the Second Temple era, the 120 prophets and sages of the Great Assembly canonized the 24 books of the Tanakh. This is the written Torah, upon which all subsequent Torah learning and discussion is based. Is that written in a book you made? You're so fast, I couldn't keep up with it. Um, so... Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna post the video in the email after the class. Um, in this book, so that set out, you just after so I answer your question, I'm gonna take questions from everyone. Um, so in the Chumash, we have the five books of five books of Moses. The Haftorah covers the Nevi'im, the prophets, but that's not all of it. Only that select readings from there. The Ksuvim, which are the writings. So Psalms, we say in Shul, I know in, in every day, and on Shabbos, Yaakov and Yaakov reads from Tehillim after davening, after after the, the service every single Shabbos and every throughout the week. Um, so we, we say that every day after davening. The Megillah that we read on Purim is... The Megillah that we read on Purim is... Also, is so we read it on Purim. On Shavuot, we read the, the Megillah of Ruth. It's not going to be as publicly. It's not going to be as publicly um, read. Like when you go to Chabad, you're not going to hear the Megillah of Ruth being read. Um, 
those scriptures are more learned, more than recited in public and make a big deal out of it. But so in when you go to come to shul, you have the chumash over there. I brought it inside, but then I forgot to bring it to my seat. So if you, Ron, if you look behind you, you'll see a full Tanakh that's right behind you on that table. You have the full Tanakh has everything in there, that book right behind, over there behind you. Yeah. All right. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah, my question is still what I was saying. Does what he said in uh, 60 mile an hour language set out in these pages? Oh, we're going to speak about it. We're not going to speak about all those books. No. But uh, you'll, I'll send the video out so you can watch it. Anyone on Zoom have any questions? Alan? I just wanted to just say something. I think this is, is this true. The Tanakh is considered the Jewish Bible or scriptures, whereas people colloquially refer to the Torah as the five books of Moses. Even though the Torah encompasses everything, if they get real specific, Five books of Moses is what's read during the um, when, when you take out the Torah, that's the five books of Moses that we're talking about. Yes, so when we refer to Torah, it's either Torah will mean the whole entire oral Torah, as we said earlier, or it will mean the five the five books of Moses. Um, when we say about the when usually we're referring to the prophets, we'll call that the Tanakh or we'll call that scripture because that's all, um, that's all part of the that area of Torah. Um, all right. So anyone else? Okay. So over here, so we just threw out that video. We saw that there's three, there is Tanakh. There are three, um, three sections of the Torah. So I want to discuss now what differentiates, what, what, what is, what makes something Torah? What makes part of Torah, Torah? Why is Torah special? better than the prophets and why are the ksuvim the writings not part of the prophets because if you look at the chart so if you, that that pullout sheet which you have if you look at the back side of it it actually goes through the history of it goes through the history of when all the writings are written and we see that there's a lot of overlap that you have isaiah wrote some of the writings king david writes to him which was in the same time psalms which is in the same time as when um samuel writes the book of samuel um, the, it's the same time as the book of Samuel, but one of them ends up being a, in the part of prophets, the other one's part of writings. So how does this all work? So the answer to this question is, if you, as you see on the slide, there are three modes of divine communication. When, um, when God speaks to Moses, when God speaks to Moses, if those just walked in, we are on page um, nine in the student or in the book. We're on page nine. So when God speaks to Moses, God, it was not a prophecy. God, Moses had a relationship with God that was similar to a relationship that one of us has with their friends. Moses was able to speak to God as a, as one speaks to a normal person. In general, when we would look at a prophet, if you were, if let's say prophecy was prevalent nowadays, you would look at the prophet and think he's a mishugana. You think he's crazy, because during while they'd get the prophecy, they would shake, they'd get, they look like they're having a seizure, and not only that, the Talmud actually says 
that after the era of prophecy ended, God took prophecy from the prophets and gave it to the Mishugayim, the crazies, that when you go and you see a guy talking on the corner of the street, and you listen, and he's predicting the future, it might just happen. I'm kidding. I don't know what that means. But the reason for why the Talmud says that is because there's actually, like, the prophets themselves, there's a saying, I forgot where it is, I can't, this is what I said you're not supposed to do, is quote, quote a part of the written Torah, um, to quote a part of the written Torah by uh, by heart, but I'm going to do it anyhow because I have no idea where it is, otherwise I'd pull out the quote. There is, one of the prophets says, that I was crazy, that I looked crazy, my friends thought I was crazy, that while he's getting the prophecy, just from the way he was, he couldn't stand straight, most of them couldn't stand straight. Moses, when he had a prophecy, he was able to look, I don't know what it means, look God in the face, but he was able to look God in the face. Like it says in the in the verse, this is text three, it says in Hebrew, I want to say the verse in Hebrew, because when the written Torah first, I'll say in English, God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks his fellow. And then there's another verse, well, just the second verse is actually from my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. So I know it by heart, but again, I'm not supposed to say it by heart. That is the Hebrew, the English is, if there were there were a prophet among you, I, God, would make myself known to them in a vision. I would speak to them in a dream. Not so my servant Moses. In all my house, he is trusted. Mouth to mouth, I speak with him. In a vision and not in riddles, he gazes at the image of God. When God talks to a prophet, what happens is as follows. The prophet, God tells the prophet something. The prophet has his whole interaction that he gets it, but now he has to reveal to the people. So God, what God says to the prophet and the prophet says to the people are incredibly different. God tells the prophet a muscle. God tells the prophet a parable. And the prophet explains how to, he makes that practical which last JLI course, we um, it's one of my favorite words, but we um, establish it's not a real word. He practicalizes. Um, he makes it practical. The He makes practical what this prophecy is supposed to mean. On the contrary, the Talmud says, speaking about Moses, that when Moses spoke to God, God spoke to Moses as is. Moses repeats to us the Torah. Whenever it says, Hashem God told Moses, saying, that is, Moses wrote down what God said, verbatim, word for word. Everything he said, he wrote it down. It wasn't in a, nothing, we have it exactly how it is. So the Torah, it has the highest level of communication between God and a human being, and therefore there's actually an interesting law. If you ever see a, if you ever are in a shul, and you see the, the they put out the chumash and the brown books, and someone puts a sitter on top of it, the sitter is not allowed to be on top because the ultimate level of communication between God and a human being is the Chumash. That's our holiest book. That has to be always the top book. Second one will be the prophets, would be number two, then Ksuvim number three. Um, so that is, the reason for that is, is because it's a much higher level of communication. So now, I just want to finish off and say, before I go on, is that, one second, one more thing, that in the Chumash, you have all the 613 mitzvahs. So 
all these discussions between God and Moses is what makes the mitzvahs. There are no more mitzvahs after that. Any mitzvahs which were established later on are not part of the 613. They're considered rabbinic mitzvahs, as we'll see in a second. There's actually, we're not going to get into it at all, but we're not getting into the whole background discussion. There's actually a discussion if the mitzvah of Purim is one of the 613 mitzvahs, and the conclusion is no, because it's by a prophet, it's not by Moses. Yes, Nate. Um, you said that uh, uh, the Siddur would be under the Torah. Uh, what about the Tanya or the Talmud? The Tanya, the Tanya um, we're going to get into that in lesson six, but Talmud, the Tanya, we don't read. The, the rule is they, it goes equal. So if it, you never put a Chumash top of a Tanya or a Tanya top of a Chumash, a Talmud would go under the Siddur, under the Chumash also. But the sitter doesn't make a difference. The sitter and the Talmud are from the same era. So now, great. So Moses gave us all 613 mitzvahs. So um, what are the prophets here for? We got all 613 mitzvahs. Moses gave that to us. So now why do we have, why do we need prophets? What are the prophets here to tell us? So the prophets actually, I'm going to, I just realized, I just casually skipped over text number, um, text number four, uh, which said that there's, um, there were, I'll just say it, there are 48 prophets and seven prophetesses that gave, that were by Israel. And, and they neither subtracted nor added to the written Torah. So back to my question, what were the prophets? What's the point of the prophets? So the prophets actually had, they had three roles. They had rule number one of a prophecy would be to, they spoke about teshuva a lot about the value of return to make community or an individual to return to God. Number two would be they would come to warn about the future um, of if we do such and such, this would be the consequence, which unfortunately we see throughout his history that throughout the prophets, there are certain things that it said, they said that if such and such is done and such and such will happen. And unfortunately, most of the prophecies came true. And number three would be to that even to give us hope that even when we are in our right now we are in exile we are in but to give us hope for a future that even when we're in the lowest of spaces the prophets were there to give us hope that a we should have a that we'll have a better future so now the prophecy as we said already prophecy was not a god speaking to them directly so the God would speak to the prophet. The prophet would relate how he understood it to us to make it, he would humanize it a bit. That being said, that being said, therefore, prophets are on a lower level because even though a prophecy, it's actually ironic, a prophecy sounds a lot more holy. When you open up the Torah, it's very, very easy to understand the Torah. Open up a chumash, you could read. It's very easy to understand. Open up the book of Ezekiel. It'll be very hard to understand. It's a lot more cryptic. You, you end up feeling a lot more holy. And that is because 
the ultimate, God is the ultimate simplicity. The more humans get into the picture, the more complicating things become. And therefore, the prophets are actually be harder to understand, even though they have more human interaction than the in Torah, because the Torah is very unhumanized. It's almost the only humanity that's in the Torah is the fact that Moses wrote it down. That's the humanity of the Torah. When it comes to the the prophets, the humanity of the prophets is that it was their understanding them, a prophet relating the way they understood their vision they got from God. So his brain, the prophet's brain, is part of the equation. Moshe had zero, did not, Moses, Moshe did not need to understand the Torah when he wrote it down. He just needed to write down whatever he heard. The prophet has to have a certain base level understanding in order to write it down. Now, let's go to the writings. Then after this, I'll take questions. You have a question. Yeah. The prophet never makes up the mitzvah. Yes. He gets it from God. The prophet God speaks through the prophet. Yeah, yeah. But the prophet, if the prophet tells you to stop doing a mitzvah, we know he's a, he's a false prophet. You said, for example, the, the mitzvah relating to reform. That's a rabbinic mitzvah. Yeah, but that's a, it's not. He didn't, they didn't say this is what God told us to do. They said this is our initiative. It's not. It's a rabbinic mitzvah. Oh, I thought you said it was a prophet. You know, the prophets made it, but those are it's considered a rabbinic mitzvah because it was their initiative. All right, so now let's go to the, the writings. So the writings are an even lower level of the writings are an even lower level of God interaction, even higher level of human interaction. The writings were written through Ruach HaKodesh, which means divine inspiration, which um, which we're going to get into in a minute what it is. We're going to read uh, text number five. But the... Um, it was written through divine inspiration, which is not prophecy. It's actually, it's a lower level. So let's look at, let's go straight into text number five before we discuss. So this on page 11. Text number five, the person feels that if something has, so the person, this is the person who's getting divine inspiration, feels as if something has come upon them. And as if they have received a new power that derives them to speak. They speak words of wisdom or compose hymens or exhort their fellows with wise advice or discourse on matters of communal leadership or theology. All of this while they are awake and are in the full possession of their senses. This is unlike the prophet, which he said is not in full possession of his senses when he's getting his prophecy. Such a person is said to speak with Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration. It was through this kind of divine inspiration that David composed Psalms. Solomon composed the books of Proverbs and Kohelis and the Song of Songs. Also Daniel, Job, Chronicles, and the rest of the writings were written in this manner. In reference to such Ruach HaKodesh, David says, The Spirit of God spoke in me, and His words is on my tongue, i.e. the Spirit of God caused him to speak these words. So what does this mean practically? It means that someone who has divine inspiration, which we say this in general about uh, tzaddik, someone who's a righteous person has divine inspiration. There's actually a very, very interesting story about this divine inspiration. There's one time with the fifth Chabad Rebbe, 
someone comes into someone comes into him to ask him advice, and the Rebbe tells him, "I think you should invest your money." No, the, the person comes to ask the Rebbe advice, says, "I want to invest my money in whatever it was." So the Rebbe looks at him and says, "I don't think you should invest. You should invest your money in that." So the guy, he reads, he was kind of relentless. So he explains the Rebbe again, the whole entire investment, how it's a guaranteed money maker. And the Rebbe says, yeah, I get it, but don't invest your money there. Anyhow, he doesn't listen and he invests all his money and he loses everything. So he goes back to the Rebbe and he says, you know, Rebbe, you obviously knew I'm going to lose everything. So you just should have told me you're going to lose everything and this is how it's going to happen. I would have for sure listened to you. So to which the Rebbe responded, he said, I had no idea you're going to lose everything. I just knew you shouldn't make the investment. I didn't know why. I could not help you. So that's divine inspiration. That divine inspiration is that when the when these writings were written, they felt like their normal selves, but they were on a high. Almost as if I have to say this, but almost like people take substances to get like these these writers, these uh these uh not author um singers that will go on a They'll get really high and they'll come with this incredible song. So this is a spiritual high. Through their spirituality, they're able to have this high in order to create whatever they, they were creating. And that is the Ksuvim. And this is a it is a very high level. It's very divine. There's divine intervention within it, which is clear. But it's very humanized. And therefore, it's not as holy as the prophets. So just to summarize that we just spoke about the Tanakh. So there are three parts in the Tanakh. There's the Torah, which is the written Torah. There's the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And there's the Ksupim, which are the writings, which the Torah, it was written by God face-to-face -face for Moses. Moses really did not need to be an understander as much as he needed to be a, um, just he was just a hand that wrote it down. God told Moses, Moses didn't put any of his own, Moses did not put any of his own ideas in there. So much so that Moses ends up writing in the end of the Torah that Moses died. He writes about himself that he died because God told him to write that. You have the prophets, which is divine. God speaks to the prophets, but the, not in a not in a comprehensible way. The prophets have to humanize that to make it comprehensible. Then there's like Suvin, which were the writings which originally were comprehensible, but and so, but they were, they came through a divine spirit that came to the person. So now I just want to take a few minutes. I want to just explore a little what bit of. Where did you finish that? Excuse me? Were the prophets written by God or by the prophet? It was written by the prophet. God spoke to the prophet in a, un, in a way that was not possible for the normal human to understand. The prophet interpreted well, it. He spoke to Moses. No, Moses, it was. Moses, whatever they wrote, God could have wrote it himself, would have come out the same way. The prophecy, God, whatever God told the prophet, and the way the prophet repeated that are very different. Oh. So now. Do we have what God told the prophets? No. We don't know. They don't even know. They well, just know. All he knows what the prophet said, they heard him know. Yeah, and they, um, they couldn't repeat it either because when after they got out of their trance, they have their way of understanding it. So, so they were inspired by God and then did the writing on their own. Yeah. So I just want to do some exploration before we continue. So I want everyone to turn the student book to page 30. We're going to do some jumping. There are a whole bunch of teachings 
Um, there are a whole bunch of teachings of different parts of Torah. I just want to go through a few interesting ones so we could uh, just do some exploration. So Genesis, this is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the world was desolate and void, and darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the water. And God said, there shall be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated between light and dark and the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And in the eve, it, and it was evening, and it was morning one day. So now I want to show you how the oral Torah takes this and totally transforms this statement that we just read, read which we all know. We're on page thirty. Said Rabbi Abahu, in the beginning of creation, God beheld the deeds of the righteous and the deeds of the wicked. And the world was desolate and void. These are the deeds of the wicked. There shall be light. These are the deeds of the righteous. But I still do not know which of these God desires. When it says God saw light, that it was good, I know that God, God desires the deeds of the righteous and does not desire the deeds of the wicked. So now look in Tanya, the, the bottom part. In truth, evil has no actual substance at all. This is why evil is compared to darkness, which has no actual substance, and therefore is automatically banished in the presence of light. So too, the forces of evil, although they seem to possess such vitality, are automatically nullified in the presence of holiness and physical darkness is and as physical darkness is nullified in the presence of physical light. Yes, Nate. Reshit Rabbah is a midrash. That's what we're going to speak about in the next class. All right, so that's part one. That's from the Torah. Now let's all turn. We're going to go a bit down, skip a whole bunch of pages to page 38. This is just the book of Isaiah, which the whole book of Isaiah speaks about the redemption. So I just want to read it. The word of Isaiah, son of Amos, prophesies concerning Judea, Judah, and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mount of the house of God will be established atop the mountains and be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of, to the, house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth Torah, and the word of God from Jerusalem. And then this part was actually, then this next part was actually a very, very famous verse. It happens to be on the wall of the UN. Mashiach will judge between nations and reprove the many peoples. They will, be, they will beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword upon nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. So those last two verses are on the wall by the UN across the streets. There's on the wall in UN Plaza, if you're ever there. Um, those two verses in the UN on the wall. It's, it's very public. Those two verses about peace. Um, are up there, those are famous. So that is a sampling of the prophets. Now let's continue turning. Um this is one of my favorite books. It's the book of Proverbs. 
Um, it's on page, we are on page 46 now. These are one of my, these are like the most timeless quotes in page 46. From the most timeless quotes that we can live with for our whole entire lives. And these are like, these are from King Solomon. It's like unbelievable stuff. So I just want to go through them. So let's go to quote number four. It says, um, love covers all sins. On page 46. He says, love covers all sins, which practically means... Um, which practically means that when we have love, we're in love with ourselves. We always, you know, every single thing we do, we always have a good excuse. But when we see our friend do it, which or someone we don't like as much, we have a hard time. We judge them. We judge them unfavorably. So this is something, this is why the Rebbe said that every person should have a mentor that points out your misdeeds because you love yourself too much. Everything you do is really the right thing. But when someone tells you, you could see past that. Let's go to the next one. The blessing of God will bring riches and toil will add nothing to it. That this comes to tell us that sometimes we work, 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 but it doesn't help because really what we need is the blessing of God. And if you have the blessing, then a little bit of work will suffice. But another person who's not had the blessing has a lot. That's something we have to know. Another one, this is on the next column, the second one. Um, jealousy rots the bones. It's something very powerful. Now, when someone's jealous, they constantly, they're never in a state of happiness. And therefore, they're going to be constantly, um, you know, when someone's not happy, they're kind of erotic. So, jealousy rots the bones. The next one, a gentle Reply turns away wrath, that if someone's angry at you, if you reply gently, they can't scream back at you. Very important lesson. Let's go to the second from the bottom. Better, one piece of dry bread and tranquility than he has house full of meat of strife. Also something, I, just, I was just going through these quotes today. I'm like, there's just, I mean, I encourage everyone to go through them afterwards. All from the book of Proverbs, the next one. Even a fool, when they keep silent, is considered wise. That's my favorite. Even a fool... When they keep silent, is considered wise. You know, Abraham Lincoln has something similar. He'd say, um, um, No, you're saying but better to have said nothing um, to be thought a fool than say something and, and remove all doubt. Yeah. yeah, so that's similar. He probably got it from here. Another really yeah. important one. Next page. Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. The soul of man is a lamp of God. That since we are doing our mission in this world, we're kind of adding to our soul and we do a mitzvah, we're kind of doing God's missions. So we're kind of a lamp for him. Another really important one, educate the child according to their way so that also when they grow old, they will not turn away from it. That the Rebbe would speak about this a lot, that when we educate children especially, that you should do it in the way that talks to them the best. That's why the Rebbe started something called the Army of Hashem, Tziv Os Hashem. He calls it the Army of Hashem. And the Rebbe said that what could I do? That that's what talks to children. People are very upset. Like they're in the religious world that how can you call it an army it's so violent there he said this is what kids talk about all day so might as well let's utilize it for the good and now the kids they like i know i meet people like oh i was part of the army of hashem i was like a sergeant major and like i did this mitzvah they still talk about it today it, it actually works which one are you referring to the second um it, the child. yeah now one more i just want to say the bottom one of this column this is another favorite of mine do not answer a fool according to their folly, lest you too become like them. 
There's another saying that's pretty famous, similar to this, which I love. Never debate an uh, a, um, an idiot in idiocy, because he'll no. Never debate an idiot because he will bring you down to his level and beat it, beat you in idiocy. Um. So anyhow, that's uh, just some sampling of the three parts of Tanakh. These are all timeless stuff, and it's like I encourage everyone later on. You have it in the back to look at it and. To look at it and study everything more at depth. Yes. To clarify, Tanakh itself is an acronym for the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Yes. All right. Any other questions over here? Zoom, any questions? All right, let's continue. So now, let's get into the Oral Torah. What is the Oral Torah? Does the Oral Torah come from, is it of divine origin? Because now we said these three parts of Torah, we spoke about very, very clearly. The Torah is verbatim, word for word of God. The prophets was more expounded upon by the prophets. The writings is even more humanized. But now they're in Torah. I come up with some amazing idea. This is Oral Torah. A midrash, where does that stand? So let's get right into it because it actually gets a bit conflicting. So let's let's mention the Talmud. The Talmud says this is in text number six, Scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Agada. Even what a prof proficient student is destined to innovate, were already said to Moses at Sinai. So it sounds like yes. Everything was told to Moses at Sinai. So this conversation we're having, I'm, we're explaining this class, was already Moses. God tells Moses at Sinai everything we're going to discuss over here. There is nothing new under the sun. We're going to always... Everything is of divine origin. Where are we? We are, we are on text number... We're holding text number six. We just said text number six. We're on page 13 of the book. Back. Yeah, we went back. So yeah, so... That is number one. But then on the other hand, we see all the time, and it even says this within the Torah, Lo Torah is not in heaven, which means that Torah was given to us. It's not a divine origin. It's, it's, um, it's within us. We have it. God gave us a Torah, and now it's no longer in heaven. So how do these two ideas conflict and we'll see even further we're going to go through we're going to go through a rabbit hole right now which is going to really take us let's go to text seven we're going to see like how to one extreme we do not care about what heaven has to say about torah once torah is given to us so let's look at text seven then i'll take your question after text seven so this is another story in the talmud on the day rabbi eliezer brought them all sorts of proofs but they rejected that they were rejected so he said to them, if the law is as I say, this water channel shall will prove it. The water channel began flowing backward. Said they to him, one does not cite halachic proof from a water channel. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the law is as I say, the walls of the study hall will prove it. The walls of the study hall leaned in and began to fall. 
Rabbi Yehoshua scolded the walls. If Torah scholars are contending with each other in matters of Torah law, what is the nature of your involvement? The walls did not fall out of deference to Rabbi Yehoshua, and neither did they straighten out of deference to Rabbi Eliezer. They remained leaning. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, If the laws, as I say, let it be proven from heaven. There, was, there then issued a heavenly voice which proclaimed, What do you want of Rabbi Eliezer? The law is as he says. Rabbi Yehoshua stood on his feet and said, The Torah is not in heaven. That's the story. Now the Talmud continues. What is the meaning of that statement? It is not in heaven. Said Rabbi Yirmiya, as the Torah ha has already been given at Mount Sinai, we do not take notice of the heavenly voices. For you, God, have already written the Torah at Mount Sinai. Follow the majority. Yes. I just wanted to clarify the Agatha. Uh, what is that a is there a popular name that we use or is that an acronym for something? Agada would either be the, the Midrash or there's parts of the Talmud which kind of sound Midrashic, which are called Agada as well. Is that like there's the, the um uh there's the Tosafet, the commentary of Rashi? No, Agada was is within the actual Talmud. There's certain parts which sound very Midrashic. They sound like they don't belong in the Talmud. But the Midrash itself is called Agada sometimes. All right, let us continue. So now Maimonides takes this idea from the story, which I think is a pretty bizarre story, and I love it. But let's, um, Maimonides takes this a bit further. Let's look at what Maimonides says. If 1,000 prophets, all on the level of Elijah, this is text 8, and Elisha have one opinion in a, on a matter of Torah law, and 1,001 sages have an opposite opinion. We must follow the majority. And the ruling is according to the opinion of the sages. Similarly, if a prophet testifies that God has revealed to him that the law regarding this commandment is such and such, or the opinion of a certain sage is the correct one, he is a false prophet. As it is written, it is not in heaven. God has not permitted us to learn Torah law from prophets, but from sages Base, basing themselves on logical arguments and opinions. So obviously, a, a prophet happens to be a very smart person. So when he operates as a sage, he could say the law is such and such, but he's not saying God told me so. He's saying this is my own understanding. When it comes to understanding Torah, it's based on our own understanding. That's if you're a sage, but if you're a prophet, you've been told by God what it is. And you are not, God will never tell you what the law is because the Torah... What, and even if you hear from above what the law is, that is meaningless because Torah has to be understood by us mortals down here. There's actually an incredible, interesting story about this topic. There was a great... A thousand one sages can outvote a thousand prophets. Correct. Even though prophets are worth more than sages. Correct. Um, there's actually an incredible story about this. In heaven, there's an argument. God says an opinion that something is, a certain type of impurity is pure. The whole, apparently, once we die, there's a massive yeshiva. There actually was a certain rabbi, he said, when we pass away, the afterlife is a yeshiva. For those who kept Torah in this world, it's the best, it's the biggest reward. They get to learn forever. Someone who didn't keep Torah in this world, it's the biggest punishment because we forced them to learn. <laughs> there's no, it's all the same. But... Um, there's a massive yeshiva in heaven, and the whole entire academy in heaven says whatever God's saying is pure is impure. There's this massive argument. So God 
says, you know what, we can't, this is not really our discussion. We need to, let's get more into it. Let's ask um, someone down there. So there's a certain, down here on earth. So there's a certain rabbi, his name was Rabbah, which Rabbah was an expert when it came to the laws of impurity. So they were, they had to bring him up to heaven. So they uh, essentially they were going to kill him. And it's a whole story how the angel of death had to, was trying to kill him. But there's a rule, if you're learning Torah, you can't die. So if someone's learning Torah 24 hours a day, they don't have the opportunity to die. So the angel of death was trying to kill him, but he couldn't kill him. And there's a whole, there's a whole, um, it's a whole story in the Talmud that I'm not getting into, well, how the angel of death tricked him to stop learning Torah for a split second. And as he's passing away, he screams out, pure, pure, to like go according to God. Because ironically enough, God's word in the heavenly academy is worthless, but one sage down here, siding with God, overtakes the whole entire heavenly academy. Wow, well, they understand the Torah because the Torah is given to us down here in this world. Hmm. And therefore, the Torah, we see, on the other hand, Torah is all about what am I trying to bring out from this? Torah is all about our understanding, it's not divine. Then we just said Torah is divine. So I want us to go back. Let's turn back to Let's turn back to text six. I want to point out something in text six so we can understand what it means because we have this paradox. On one hand, it says Torah is divine. On the other hand, it says it's not. So to understand this paradox, I want you to turn back to text six and let's look at it again. What does it say? Ron, what does text six say? Scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, Ayana, even what a proficient student is destined to innovate were already said to Moses and Sinai. So what does that mean? What does that mean? That's kind of weird. Anything a student is going to innovate. So what is that? Is it an innovation? So Moses already covered it. If Moses covered it, then it's not an innovation. And study Moses. Exactly. And if it is an innovation, how can you say Moses ever covered it? So that's we're kind of in a paradox right now. So I want to give a good analogy to explain, to get us out of this paradox. Yeah, that's it is a paradox. How we get that? So before we actually before we get the analogy, I want to bring out this paradox in an amazing story in the Talmud. Text number nine: When Moses ascended on high, he found God attending um, crowns to the letters of the Torah. Said Moses to God, "Master of the world, why have you need for these?" Said God to him, there will be a man, some generations hence, whose name is Akiva, the son of Joseph, Rabbi Akiva. And he will expound mounds upon mounds of laws from each and every title. Tittle. Tittle. Whoops. That's a tiny piece of yeah. title. Said Moses, master of the world, show him to me. Moses was sitting behind eight rows of Rabbi Akiva's disciples. The way Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva worked, depending on how smart you were, was where they sat you. So Moses gets into the time machine, and he shows up into the yeshiva, and they put him in row eight. <laughs> so Moses, who's the top of everything, he is the one that invented Torah. He's not even smart enough to be in the first seven rows of Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva, let alone to be the sage giving the class. Where are you finding this? This is text nine. Oh, but he did not understand, so he's in the eighth row, but he did not understand what they were saying. 
and he became despondent until they reached one teaching and Rabbi Akiva's disciple said to him, Master, from where had, do you know this? Said Rabbi Akiva to them, it is a law given to Moses at Sinai and Moses' mind was eased. So what's the story telling us? Is Moses had no knowledge of and was not, it was even unable to understand the teachings expounded. How is it given to him in Sinai? Yeah. So we see in the story of this paradox, Moses was given everything, but then he doesn't even understand anything. How does this all work? So now, here's the explanation. In this picture over here, so if you look at figure 1.5 on page 18, there's figure A and figure B. So number one, what's on what's number A? In A, what do you see? On page 19, on 18, what do we see in figure A? DNA. A DNA. What do you see in B? Person. A person. So how does A turn into B? So the answer is everything that is within that's gonna everything that's gonna be B is already coded into A. Right? So the proficient student that innovates was given in Sinai. Moses doesn't wasn't told exactly what he is going to say. But the only way you can innovate in Torah is if you have the source. The Torah, the written Torah, is the source code. If you can't trace back to there, then whatever you're trying to discuss in Torah is not true. Throughout the Talmud, there's these, these, these massive laws, but they're derived from one word or one letter of the Torah. If you don't have that, your law is worthless. So back to our... Um, what I said earlier that in law, there's originalist and constant... There's a constant originalist, and what's the other term? That's a, What's the other term? There's originalist with, with the Constitution or... With the, there's there's the the originalist judges. Oh, originalist and um, those who think this is a developing yeah document. It's a it's a breathing living constitution. So with the constitution, that's a that's an argument. When it comes to the Torah, the Torah is a breathing living document. But we're also originalists in the sense if you can't halacha is not flexible, the law of the Torah is not flexible. So you can't decide, oh, now these stuff changed. You have to look at the text. If you can't figure that out from the text. Yeah, obviously. We're on time. What? Sorry, we're on time. Yes. It's always relevant. Yeah, so you have to have a proof from the written text of the Torah. Otherwise, from the source code. Otherwise, it's not. It's otherwise it's not able to be. Um, it's not able, whatever your idea could be a great idea, but it's not a Torah idea. Do we have any questions? So this, these figures A and B are supposed to be an analogy? Yes. How a human being develops from an item of DNA. The DNA is the, is the Torah. The human is all the discussion around it. That's what gets built up. So the question is, the question becomes actually the man is the is the is the oral Torah. 
The written Torah versus the oral Torah. So written Torah is the DNA. So this that's yes. So yes. There's um just uh, trying to reply. Uh, there's in uh, the Talmud, there's the Mishnah, and then there's also uh, what was the second part? The Midrash, the Gemara. The Gemara. So the Gemara is the Talmud. The Mishnah is before the Talmud. The Talmud is based on the Mishnah. So like on each text, there's the Mishnah, then there's the the Gemara, and then there's the commentary of Rashi. Yeah. And the Tosafot. Uh, yeah, that comes many many years later. Okay. All right. So now the question is. Why we asked the question earlier, why do you need the oral Torah and the written Torah? Why do we need these two components? You know, if there is a if the oral is what's needed, then just stick to oral. If we want just written, let's stick to the written Torah. Why do we have both? So the answer is actually it's a very beautiful answer. God wanted us, God created this, He created imperfection, imperfect world, and He wanted us to perfect it. Another thing, God gave us an imperfect Torah and He wanted us to perfect it. So chas v'shalom to call the Torah imperfect. What I what do I mean by this? I mean that God gave us a Torah that needs to be expounded. So now if everything was written, we would not have our own piece of Torah. But in essence, we because the way the Torah is, every single one of us has our own piece of Torah, our own part of Torah, which we could develop. And the Rebbe actually, um, the Rebbe had a very, very big, um, campaign with yeshiva boys to write all their thoughts on Torah, to write them down, and to publish them. And when I was in yeshiva, I wrote a, I would write all the time all my thoughts and all my, my ideas. But the, the point of that is, because, God, it's part of we're in a partnership with God. God gave us a Torah, and when you discover a new understanding of something, that was already given to Moses at Sinai. That's true, but, notwithstanding that. We are still, that's still our own, notwithstanding that, that's still our own innovation within Torah. Moses is what, the fact that it was given to Moses at Sinai in the source code, that's what validates it. But that is our partnership. We are kind of mining, you know, um, what what um, God gave Moses, God gave Moses the Bitcoin algorithm. Now we're all mining the Bitcoin. The only difference is there's no, there's not a set amount of, there's not 21 million, how many Bitcoin? 21 million? Whatever it is, there's no set amount. This is, Torah is never ending. Um, so we are, the whole Torah is about this connection. And you know, even the Torah, if we go through the whole entire Torah, we have this connection. The Torah that Moses, the Torah that Moses, um, wrote it was written by Moses' hand even though Moses had very little interaction and our Torah is much more um really a lot of slides behind um our Torah is much more us much less God but we still need God for our part of Torah and this is actually brought out uh, very very interesting law yes um, with regards to sages are we talking about the people who created the the Talmud, or are we talking about people throughout the um, 
the second temple onwards to today. Uh, the letter. The second temple onwards till today. So there are sages today? Um, yeah. Your local rabbi. I mean, we're not going to give... I always, I love the point. Like We're not going to give our local rabbi the reverence you would give someone from 100 years ago or from 1,000 years ago. But in a thousand years from now, we will. They will. It's, it's all. It's all. It's all contextual. You think when Rashi, we all love Rashi, but you think Rashi or Maimonides. Maimonides was, was no one cared about him. Now he's one of the most revered sages, Jewish sages in history. But in his time, the the what they put him through, no one cared about him. He, they, like the people in his area hated him. The Jews from. Beyond, like he wasn't a, a well liked figure. Um, later on, he became that. I mean, that's all history in general. Like we we take we take for granted what we have. But yeah, there are sages today, and we don't know. You don't. We don't necessarily care about care for them, and it, history will let will bang out who will be the sages that were. So this idea that the written Torah, this idea that. Um, No, I'm going to skip this. I'm going to skip everything. To the, I'm going to skip a whole bunch now because we don't have a cut short for time. And I want to do the last thing. So we we are saying that Torah is a source code for everything. And Torah is a source code for everything. And therefore, everything starts off in Torah. And if you don't have that, then you can't expand outwards. So if we go to text 13... Um, I just want to show you how this comes up in halacha, and then we're going to show it uh, show how it comes up in philosophy, and then how it comes up in Kabbalah. So in halacha, in Jewish law, number one, it says, um, remember the Shabbat, Shabbat day and sanctify it. Six days you shall labor from and do all your work, and the seventh day is a rest day unto God. So the question is, what does it mean to rest? Rest from work. What means work? Does work mean baking a baking a cake? Does work mean schlepping tables? Does work mean making money? What does work mean? So the Talmud actually takes from this verse and explains in text 14. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. It is is it possible so now in S, is it possible for a person to do all their work in six days? But the meaning of the verse is rest on Shabbat. As if all your work is done. Rest from even thinking about work. So that means not to work at all. If the, if the meaning is to rest about thinking, that you should make like all your work is done, that you have nothing to do, that means work is prohibited. Well, this is Mechilta. Mechilta, yeah, I made a mistake. It's, Mechilta is, is a kind of a midrash. It was written by, it's the it's the expounding of verses of the Torah, but it was, it was written by the Talmudic sages. So let's look at text 15. This is philosophy. So the Torah says, See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Life and death I have set before you. Blessing and curse. And you shall choose life. So Maimonides, he actually analyzes this. And he says, text 16, Freedom of choice has been granted to every person. If a person wants to turn to the path of good and be righteous, the choice is theirs. And if a person wants to turn to the path of evil and be wicked, the choice is theirs. The truth is a fundamental principle and a pillar of the Torah. 
and his commandments, as it's as it is written, see, I've set before you this day life and good, death and evil. Were God to decree that a person should be righteous or wicked, or if there were to exist something of the very essence of a person's nature that would compel them toward a particular path, a particular conviction, a particular character trait, or a particular deed, how could God command us through the prophets to do this and not do this? What place would the entire Torah have? And by what measure of justice would God punish the wicked and reward the righteous? So now, where philosophy kicks in, it's God says, and you should choose life in the end. So what does God mean you should choose life? Is that a statement? Is that a question? Is that a commandment? What is that supposed to mean? Um, now in the Kabbalah, just quickly, there's a, this is a Pasuk, a verse from Chronicles. It says to you, God is, this text 17, God is greatness, power, beauty, and victory, and splendor. As all that is in heaven and earth, to you, God is kingship. So it sounds like a whole bunch of ways of praising God, but actually the Kabbalah is, a lot of Kabbalah is based off this verse, that it goes through all of the characteristics of God. Sometimes God communicates to us in a way of kindness. Sometimes God communicates uh, um, in a way of attraction. Sometimes God communicates with us in a way of rejection. Sometimes God communicates with us in mercy, and this verse actually goes through all of those characteristics of God. So I just want to finish off with a few key points of this lesson, a few takeaways, which are the main takeaways that we should have. Ta um, number one is that the Torah, everything is Torah. The oral Torah, written Torah is all called the Torah. Now, what is the difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah? The written Torah is a text-based learning. And therefore, the words are important. The oral Torah is really a people-based learning. It's about the sage, where it came from. The fact that it was written is secondary. And therefore, and therefore, um, the ideas are what are important more than the words. Number two was about the Tanakh. That Torah was a direct communication of, the, of God. Nevi'im, the prophets, was a communication of God to the prophet. Then the prophet re um, reveals his way. He understands God to us. And the Ksuvim, the writings, were written with divine inspiration. So the per the writer was feeling feeling it at the moment. That's why he wrote it down. But he did not have a direct revelation of God. But he was feeling spirituality, a authentic spirituality, while he was he was writing it. And last but not least, that the oral Torah and the relationship with the oral Torah with the written Torah is. The oral Torah, the written Torah is a source code, and everything in the oral Torah has to relate from the written Torah. And if it's not, then it's obvious, it's inaccurate, but everything is within the oral Torah, within the written Torah, the whole entire oral Torah. But because it's just like a source code, we can develop it to understand stuff which were never even explained to Moses at Sinai, even though they were given to Moses at Sinai. Do I have any questions? The last point. Yeah. What? Yeah. The third. The third chapter. Yes. What do you mean? 
and it doesn't seem to follow anything to 